By the way, in the 60s, when the issue was raised about whether alternatives were an escape or a change in the society, I thought that issue was rather irrelevant because they were both a retreat and a hope. They were both a way of running away from the problems of the society and building something better. And I think that very issue had to have in it the seeds of this dual nature of commitment that you must pull away from something else, turn your back on it, and you must move towards something that's valuable and meaningful in which you can invest yourself as a human being. So there are those two sides of it. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework. We're trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science and Now we have bigger problems than ever before. But we are conserving literally. It's impossible to care for each other more. What must be done how we care for the earth? Yeah. Now we see all the literally for our survival on the planet. We have to there is no way on the planet without love, the way of life. It is the small community, not the same. I belong here. I am part of this body. We are one together. Talking to children could build on our shoulders rather than realizing that everything on the earth as being with us, not for us. On a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together both scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, Rosabeth Cantor, the author of Community and Commitment, analyzes the factors that make a difference between success and failure in alternative communities. She focuses her analysis on several historical cases, including ancient esoteric communities, the Oneida community, Shaker Villages, the Lindisfarne Association, and others. Talking about failure means also talking about success. And so this really permits me to talk about the thing I'd most rather talk about, which is why some alternatives really, in fact, work very well. What kinds of institutional arrangements, social mechanisms can be developed that create viable alternatives? I'm using alternatives now to mean something that has a community or communal focus, not just a commune, but any kind of organization or social unit or decentralized firm that wants to operate on principles other than coercion, that wants to create a community out of the people who participate. And I assume that's what most of us mean by alternatives. It's important to recognize that alternative by itself doesn't necessarily mean something that's good. Failure is a very difficult concept. When I first began to work in this area in the 60s, and I was defining success of alternative communities in terms of longevity, I got quite a bit of criticism from those of my friends and colleagues who wanted to believe that longevity was, in, was irrelevant, that endurance was irrelevant, 
that it was only the experience of the moment that counted, back to Houston Smith's concern, and that in fact, a community should only be in existence as long as it's satisfying the needs of its members. And if that was but a moment, a day, half a year, that's enough. That was fine. It was what it was. That point of view concerned me, in fact, because not only did I see that that attitude toward endurance had its own transiency built into it, but that the foundations for a new social order were not being created. And that, in fact, if a community can be developed that can satisfy the needs of its members, then one could predict that it might continue to do so over time. That doesn't necessarily mean that longevity is the only criteria, but it seemed to me a good substitute, given that in some cases we can't really measure success by, by other kinds of means. Another meaning of success, of course, is whether a community or a venture manages to continue to live up to its own values. And that I also accept as a very viable and meaningful definition of success, but also one that's very tricky and difficult to test. Because if it fails to do this, is it doing it because its members have changed or because it as a social arrangement has not continued to be viable over time? So in the absence of being easily able to measure such things as meeting needs of members and continuing to live up to values over time, I'm going to take endurance as a shorthand. Because I'm going to, to assume that any community or venture or alternative that does manage to persist for a significant amount of time is doing something right for the people who belong to it. If it isn't operating by coercive means, if people are genuinely committed and involved. So to some extent, my definition of success is a community or institution that manages to create commitment in its participants, that manages to generate feelings of loyalty, belonging, involvement, feelings of satisfaction out of the people that participate in their venture. So in order to distinguish success from failure, I think it's important to have a theory of commitment. What it is that make people feel that they belong and own the social institutions that they're part of. Because that is the basis for the kind of decentralized strategy that we've been talking about. And that is the basis for many of the kinds of alternatives that we wish to envision. That people are committed because what they have to do to sustain the group is the same thing that will get them what they need as individuals to sustain their own life. So in systemic terms, there's a congruence or an integration between person and system. And that's what I mean by commitment. Commitment is at the core of the success of alternatives, more so than almost any other measure I could find. And you can tell this by looking at some reasons alternatives don't fail. For one thing, they hardly ever fail because they fail to make their living. I think Barry's point about the efficiencies of small size is also congruent with this perspective. In the kinds of communities I've looked at, which range from 19th century American utopias and intentional communities to contemporary communes, the kibbutz, alternative collectives in the city, food co-ops, and so forth, hardly ever does such an outfit declare itself out of existence solely, because, solely for financial reasons, solely because it couldn't make it economically. If that is the overt reason, generally it's masking some failure of commitment on the part of members, some feeling that this is no longer right for us where we are now. Communities also don't fail because of external persecution. In fact, if we know anything about humankind, it's that people are often highly tenacious in the face of external persecution, and then in fact 
Getting it from the establishment is often one thing that binds together members of alternatives. So in that sense, paranoia can be very functional, and outside pressure can also be very functional, because having an external enemy can help a group band together. So rarely, if ever, unless the pressure is so great that it simply disbands the group because they're all carted off to jail, which I don't have instances of, even such things as mob violence against the Shakers in the 19th century failed to shake the faith of these people. In fact, it really reinforced the faith. It said, we're doing something that's important enough that they want to take action against us, and this just confirms our purpose. I think the other day somebody mentioned when prophecy fails as another instance of of a failure really leading to a success experience for the group. That something doesn't happen in the outside world, and this makes people renew their faith, make them feel they should work twice as hard. Also, alternatives rarely fail because of environmental catastrophes, like floods, famines, earthquakes, and other natural disasters. In the 19th century, when there were hundreds of utopian communities in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, the ones that fell apart after floods, famines, and so forth were generally the ones that were not making it as a social arrangement, as a community, where people were not feeling fully committed. And the others found some way, again, to renew their faith in their venture or to move on. And migration was a very frequent pattern for communities if somehow they're not managing to make it on the spot that they live in at the moment. And the kibbutzim have much the same experience. In fact, um, until the Seven-Day War in Israel in 1967, there was concern that the kibbutz was losing commitment, especially of the second and third generation, because of the lures of the city, because maybe the kibbutz wasn't as necessary anymore now that their pioneering days were over in Israel and so forth. After the war, commitment shot up again. And in the face of the threat to the survival of the very society and that way of life, young people began to return enthusiasm was revived, and there was very little in the way of external threat that, in fact, drove the communities apart. If anything, it welded them more solidly together. So the conventional reasons that one might list for why an alternative fails are often not the real reason. I think at the heart of the matter is the kind of commitment that people feel, the sense of community that they have. I think you can hear me using the words commitment and community sometimes interchangeably, and that's why I've used it for a title. The commitment derives from a sense of community, and a sense of community derives from the commitment and energy, zeal, faith, belief, concern of the members themselves. The two are intertwined, and it's that sort of system that I want to talk about. So let me briefly give you the outlines of a, of a theory of commitment and some of the specific practices that groups engage in that help them succeed as alternatives. And I'll also talk about some of the traps, some of the dilemmas and paradoxes that groups face that can make them fail as alternatives. Commitment to me is a process of balance. It's a two-sided process. It involves both detaching yourself from some other ties, commitments, connections, a process of breaking away from something else, and a process of attachment a process of becoming close to whatever it is that you're committed to. So both of these issues are important for commitment. There's a problem of breaking away from the established society, breaking away from your established patterns and ways of life, and there's an issue of what you're coming toward, an issue of attachment, what you're coming close, what you're going to be in this new way. 
By the way, in the 60s, when the issue was raised about whether alternatives were an escape or a change in the society, I thought that issue was rather irrelevant because they were both a retreat and a hope. They were both a way of running away from the problems of the society and building something better. And I think that very issue had to have in it the seeds of this dual nature of commitment that you must pull away from something else, turn your back on it, and you must move towards something that's valuable and meaningful in which you can invest yourself as a human being. So there are those two sides of it. And there are also various levels, and I'll talk about those as I go along. Um, the detach I'm using, you'll see in my labels, deliberately strong words, and they're often words that come out of religious traditions because I think that's important. The religious traditions are the way in which we do see the most fervent commitments. And I also don't want to mask how difficult these processes are, that the strong words are deliberately chosen because the processes themselves are very demanding of human beings, that a strong community, a sense of involvement and belonging is something that doesn't come easily. It does require a certain amount of struggle, and it does have costs attached to it. And it's that balance between costs and rewards. It's in that matrix that commitment exists. The first set of issues have to do with the calculative, instrumental side of human nature. By the way, you'll hear in this, too, that it's almost impossible to have a theory of institutions and how they operate, or how they should operate, without having some theory of human nature, what it is about people that involves them in institutions, what it is about people that welds them together in new forms of social arrangements. So I'm assuming that there is a calculative, instrumental side to people in which they weigh rewards and costs in a very cognitive way, in which we say to ourselves, is this really worth it, what I'm doing? Am I getting out of it what I want to get out of it? So the first set of issues have to do with sacrifice, the ways in which communities demand of people that they give something up as a price of membership. There are a set of theories in psychology, theories of cognitive consistency, that say only when people have to give something up is what they get in return really worth anything to them. And I think intuitively we can sometimes see that the things that come easily are often not the things that are valued. It's the things that are struggled for. It's the things that come at some kind of cost that have meaning. And so sacrifice and sacred come from many of the same roots. There's some consistency between the act of sacrifice and the imbuing of an act with sacredness. So the ventures, the communities that I know about that have succeeded have all been ones in which some sacrifice was required as a price or a cost of membership, in which people had to give something up when they crossed the line into the community. Sometimes it was giving up a personal indulgence or habit, um, alcohol, tobacco consumption. These all had other ideological reasons too, but partly they, they served to symbolize for people that you're now crossing the line into another way of life, and it costs something. You can't have everything that you had before. You must detach and let go from some of that. But it's also true that the successful communities are off, often win their success for themselves after a period of struggle and austerity. They don't start out with luxurious buildings and a fully formed community. In fact, that's one sure route to ensure failure. Robert Owen, who was a great 19th century philanthropist and who tried to start a new community essentially by venture capital, um, tried that route that is of 
providing for people a ready-made, luxurious community where everything was already in place. He bought New Harmony from a religious commune, the Harmony Society, and he invited the well-meaning of all nations to come. And when they came, they found the buildings already built, the work there to be done, and the struggle was not part of the life of the community for them. It was already given. And this was, it wasn't very meaningful, clearly. There were a lot of other reasons New Harmony fell apart, but it took about two years for it to unravel and maybe another year for the pieces to be picked up, but it was one of the most well-publicized disasters of the 19th century. So that struggle is very important, and the kibbutzim knew that too, and that's why the pioneering spirit was so alive there. This leads to a dilemma for alternatives, of course, because to some extent the people who struggle aren't aware that it's the sacrifice involved in the struggle that are helping build the community, and they then want to turn it over to their children intact. My parents said that to me all the time. I want my children shouldn't have to struggle the way I struggled. In some sense, though, the people who don't earn it by struggle also don't necessarily value it. And so it's the children of that generation that themselves grew up in poverty, gave their children affluence, and it's the children of that generation that may again be trying to pioneer, or did in the 60s anyway, that to some extent rejected the things that were just easily given. So it's important to remember that element of sacrifice as something important and that in some ways needs to be built into the structure and fabric of the community. It's too easy to institutionalize the luxuries you finally win after the process of struggle. For this reason, some of the best community types I know, I mean the most fervent community types I know, consider themselves pioneers and refuse to stay at a place after it's built up because it's suddenly no longer the place that they were committed to. And it's important to remember that that sometimes comes from sacrifice. Well, if that's sort of cutting off, cutting loose, giving up, the other half of it is investment. There need to be opportunities for people to invest what they value about themselves in the community, their time, their energy, their resources. It's a giving to and a getting back. So the successful alternatives tend to have some mechanism by which people contribute and then reap the rewards. Ventures that fail are often those that don't require much of members nor give people a chance to do very much for the community. There were a lot of communes like that in the 60s in which it was possible to come and just wander around and not feel that there was any place or time for meaningful involvement. And people after a while said, is it worth it? I can come in, I can pull out, I'm not invested, I don't own it. And I use those economic words deliberately too because it's that sense of ownership, of merging and melding my resources, my time, energy, my property, my goods, with those of the community that help build that sense of commitment. Well, those mechanisms are important to some extent, but I think less important than what's coming. I think as we go through this scheme, um, they get more and more important all along because sacrifice and investment to some extent distinguish successes from failures, but not very much because the calculative instrumental side of people isn't all there is to it and it may be some ways the least important side of a process of commitment. Um, when we move toward renunciation and communion and move toward the social side, the social emotional side, the ways in which people involve themselves with other people, then the mechanisms start to become even more important. Renunciation is the process of detachment that involves ties with other people, ties with the world. Successful groups, to some extent, tend to impose a boundary between themselves and the wider society. 
between themselves and previous relationships and ties. This creates a set of dilemmas, but it also helps weld the community together and make people feel that this is where their primary commitment lies. The boundary issue is particularly important. Again, a lot of alternatives fail because their boundaries are too open. Anybody can come in and out. People can leave easily. The outside is invited in. It's like Lou Gottlieb who deeded his land to God, and then any citizen, any, anybody who was one of God's creatures could come and live there. There was no sense of in and out. There was no sense of the enclosure around the community. And as much as exclusivity um, is a negative, I think, in, in much of the rhetoric of alternatives, yet monasteries were very aware of the need for enclosure and the need for boundaries and the need for turning their backs on some relationships and ties in order to build the strength of the community inside itself. So the successful 19th century utopian communities all had very strong boundaries. In fact, sometimes it, ven it, it verged on the totalitarian. Oneida and the Shakers, for example, controlled people go movements in and out, how often they could leave, and people were restricted to only so many trips to the outside world. And it was partly to cut off the corrupting influences of the outside world, but it was also to build the sense of renunciation. You have detached yourself from that world outside. But of course, that's the other trap a community can fall into. And that also eventually sows the seeds of failures. Too much renunciation, too closed boundaries, leads to communities that are only inward looking, that can't make use of their contacts with the outside world. And also in the society we live in, closing your boundary too much makes it impo is impossible. The, the outside world won't let you. They won't let you alone. So the accommodation many successful communities have made, which I think is also organizationally true of Lindisfarne, and it was true of places like Synanon, who are trying to be a community in, in the helping sense, is to define for themselves a service that they could do for the outside world that permitted some interaction and contact, but at the same time draw a very close circle around those people who were in and who were members. It was, it's permitting levels of members finally getting down to the inner core that do share something inside the enclosure that other people don't share. So that's a dilemma that has to be balanced, but some renunciation is important. Some of the successful communities often ask people to renounce other kinds of competing loyalties too, besides those of the outside world, or more specifically often, loyalties to their family, their past identities, to give that up when you come in and you now belong to this new group so actually the most extreme example of this, aside from China and its tail-cutting ceremonies, which involved people in the revolution by giving up their contacts to the bourgeois family, was the Shakers, who asked people not only to renounce worldly goods and possessions, to renounce the corrupting influence of the outside world, to renounce contact with them, but also to renounce their biological families. And this has been memorialized in Shaker verse. One of my favorite Shaker songs goes, of all the relations that ever I see, my old fleshly kindred are furthest from me. How hateful they look, how ugly they feel. To see them and hate them increases my zeal. <laughs> However, the next verse goes on to make clear what the point of that renunciation is. And it says, my old, got my, my, I don't remember all the words, my gospel kindred are dearer to me, my, that's fellow shakers, than all the flesh kindred I ever could see. In other words, it's giving up those people in order to make the community more precious, 
And people felt they did have to give this up, that those other ties and loyalties were a source of competing pulls and pressures. And it was very, it's very striking to me, by the way, I'm talking about the most extreme forms of these organizational mechanisms. Very striking to me to see, even in urban collectives in the early 70s, who were the loosest kinds of groups that hardly could be considered a committed social arrangement, how nervous people got when their parents were about to visit, and how the group felt about those reminders of the past. I'll get to that a little bit more in mortification, because to some extent, people were being born again in the community. So twice born, Jimmy Carter aside, is a very significant concept for communities and a very significant organizational arrangement. And I think we might not want to go so far as to vilify our parents, but to some extent, there's something about that other, otherness, that needs to be, for, to, from which one must detach oneself in order to be committed to the community of which one's a member. I feel very mixed about those sorts of mechanisms, by the way, because they're the opposite of this world community we want to build. Um, and they are often, I often think that aren't there other ways for people to get close than have shared enemies, that is, than, than project their hostility outward. I wonder about that because I'm not, I, do, I don't have too many examples and I would like to know if other people have examples of communities that have managed to do that whether the enemy is symbolic, whether it's the past, whether it's the thing I used to be, whether it's those people I don't see anymore, somehow there's something about making that us and them distinction that, has, that builds the community. So I no longer tell people they're bad people if they think that way, but understand it in terms of the flow and rhythm of their own community. Well, there were other ways, there were even more extreme forms of renunciation. I'll mention them briefly because they're interesting, although I don't think they're terribly relevant to, to many of today's alternatives. In Oneida, for example, one not a kind of competing loyalty that was renounced was ties to a single mate or to children. And in building the collective family that Oneida was to become, um, fidelity was negatively sanctioned, coupling was not permitted, and people were considered married to every member of the community. Again, what's important about that, um, let me back up a minute, the Shakers functionally did the same thing by celibacy. Nobody was married to anybody else in the community because nobody had any sexual contact. The point of these very extreme forms, though, were again that the community was being emphasized, the shared ties, not something private. I guess that's also important to remember about the boundary mechanisms. People's past, their outside social ties, were things they individually had and held. They were almost a form of social property. And what the community was asking them to renounce were ties that were not shared rather than just give up social contacts except for us. So what I also saw in those urban collectives is that when parents came or visitors came, everybody wanted to own the parents and the visitors, and not just the people to whom they form formally or biologically belonged. Well, enough about renunciation. As you, as you can see, I find it one of the more, when I detach myself from more morality and think sociologically, I find it one of the most in, more interesting phenomena. But the other part of it is, what are you doing all this giving up for? It's for a sense of communion. So the attaching part are all the ways that communities and institutions have of making people feel part of a whole, feel that sense of communion that means I belong here. I am part of this body. We are one together. Um, I like the, that's from a Crosby, Sills, and Nash song, and they go on to say some other things, but I really like that line. Um, Although I have a friend who every time somebody in the counter, who was studying the counterculture in the 60s, and everybody, every time somebody would say we are all one, he would say, how about two? So, but that sense of oneness is very important. 
One of the first ways that it's built, and one of the first ways alternatives can stumble if they don't do it, is it tends to be built out of a core of people who have something in common. It is very difficult to build it out of heterogeneous pop populations. Temporary coalitions are possible, but the kind of shared understanding that comes from a meaning system that transcends what you're beginning with at the moment isn't there. So again, to use Robert Owen's New Harmony as a drastic example, when he threw it open to the well-meaning of all nations, he got a rather motley crew. I mean, people did come from all over. They had, it wasn't clear what they had in common or why they were there together or what they shared. So the, the homogeneity of sorts need not just come from the same social background, although often that helps. It may come out of, out of um, an ideology that you clearly share or beliefs or meanings that you clearly share, but that element of commonality needs to be there. And again, I think it is important that, at least for the community part of it, that people who are similar, who share something, build their own community and don't try to incorporate everybody in the world in it. I think in some ways plurality may come from the contacts those communities have with each other and across boundaries. And if they begin to share enough experience through the experience of the alternative, then perhaps exchange is possible. But that's why I think it is important that there's a new alchemy in which people have certain kinds of interests. And there's a Lindisfarne in which people have another set of interests. And there might be um, middle class, working class, upper class, Jewish, Catholic, whatever communities. That does seem to me relevant. And I can un um, it is not ethnic purity that I'm talking about, nor is it closing your boundaries to people who are different. But for a beginning, there's so much else that a community must cope with that they stumble often if they try to incorporate too much diversity and heterogeneity initially. It can be incorporated later, but common experience helps as a basis and a background. Sometimes that also leads into a trap and a dilemma that the community becomes only what those people are and have. And even the Israeli kibbutzim are in that bind at the moment because we're finding classism developing for example, as Oriental Jews come to the kibbutz and suddenly they're not liked by the Eastern European Jews who were the pioneering generation. So there are dangers and that's one of the traps. But to somehow deal with that issue of communion through commonality first um, and then also be aware of the traps and dilemmas and binds. Well, communion is also built by the kinds of property and work arrangements people have. The successful communities did tend to share property and own it in common. The unsuccessful left a lot of private property, which not, didn't necessarily create differences between people, competition and contention and so forth, but they missed that opportunity to create communion through shared ownership. And I've watched, it doesn't happen all at once, by the way. It didn't spring into being immediately from a blueprint or a plan or somebody's idea. It's a slow, gradual process that unfolds over time. But I've watched even small-scale, again, urban collectives that hardly see themselves as total communities gradually build towards shared ownership out of the process of communion. One group, for example, to give very mundane examples, began with everybody having all their own sheets and towels. And then in the laundry, it got hard to sort them. So they started putting all the towels in a common pool. And then the next year, they did that with the sheets. And then finally, they started buying some property together. And eventually, they now have they've been in operation about six or seven years, and they have a very strong community, 
and a very strong sense of we-ness and our-ness out of gradually developing communal property, things that could not be associated with a single individual. That's why it's hard to start with property that belonged to somebody in advance, because it's very difficult for it to lose that label over time, and it sometimes helps to start fresh. That's why a lot of alternatives, by the way, don't, the successful ones often start by moving somewhere else than wherever they, they started, either to another office, another neighborhood, away from somebody's house, but a place where they can begin from common ground. Communal labor is another way in which communion is built. Alternatives often fail because they over-specialize and over-bureaucratize, because the point is to do whatever the job is and to forget about the process by which it's done. And if, and if somebody's good at something, they gradually take ownership of that job. It's just as important to share ownership of work as of property in order to have a sense of communion. So the successful groups rotated jobs. They tended to give everybody a crack at the more desirable jobs and everybody a crack at the more obnoxious jobs. And they did it often by a system that was established and defined in advance. So people knew how long they had to suffer or how long they had to have the pleasure. And when there were issues of skill differences that it was important to acknowledge, alternatives that were successful built in other forms of rotation. Like on the kibbutz, the doctor is still a doctor, but he does the dishes like everybody else. So certain jobs in every kind of group can be rotated no matter what. Others, maybe not. So that's another dilemma that has to be balanced. Everybody doing everything or people only doing their specialty. In fact, communion lies somewhere in the interplay between those two. And they also built communion by kinds of collective work efforts. We have an old, a traditional American um, form, folk form of this in the bee, the quilting bee, the husking bee, the harvest bee, the barn raising bee. And this is what successful alternatives tend to do also. They tend to have some occasions in which there's one common task that everybody is working on jointly so that people are not always doing their individual work. And the joy out of that common task often helps weld the community together. There's a beautiful example of renunciation and communion working simultaneously in the Oneida community, which because of its um, so-called complex marriage practices was the object of a great deal of attention by its neighbors in upstate New York in the 19th century. As you can imagine, they were rather scandalized by it and curious about these kinds of people. So Oneida was bombarded by visitors. They, like many contemporary alternatives, restricted visitors to a particular period of time, so they kept their boundaries and their definitions clear. But after the visitors left at night, the entire community gathered for a ritual sweeping bee, and they sang songs and said prayers, and they purified their community from those awful outside influences. <laughs> so it was collective and communion. It reinforced the boundaries, and it also did another thing that I'll talk about under transcendence. It made even the most mundane work in the community invested with meaning and imbued with some higher moral purpose. Well, communion is also built through ritual. I probably, to this group, need to say less about that than, than to other kinds of audiences. But sometimes alternatives that fail also fail to ritualize anything. They fail to celebrate themselves. They get too caught up in the work and the task and forget about stopping to take stock, to acknowledge, to celebrate. They forget about the need for, to be in touch with the recurrent and the meaningful, the need to celebrate those things that 
that are part of the rhythm of their existence as a community. So rituals were very, a very important part of, of the unity and the communion of successful alternatives. Everything in the kibbutz from gatherings at night in which people sing songs and do Israeli folk dances. The Shakers had this elaborate ritual, which is how they got their name, Shaking Quakers, because they stomped and stormed. And again, they're a good example, because they, the Shakers, because they do all of these things in such dramatic form, they can be seen so crisply and clearly. At the rituals, the Shakers um, engage in something they call the giving of gifts. It sounds like an encounter group in form in many ways. It sounds like part of the human potential movement. It was like a big love-in. They went around the circle, they danced and sang, went up and hugged and kissed each other, told each other nice things. They also had the warring gift, which they told each other off and shared anger. It was extremely expressive and emotional, and this recurred. And on top of those rituals, they had ceremonies for every possible feast day and celebration, and it was all part of their sense of, of communion and oneness and sense of we-ness in the community. So rituals are very important. Um, well, let me move on, because in many ways they're all intertwined, too. I mean, the theory in any conceptual scheme is only a way of artificially dividing up something that's, that's part of a whole, part of a package. The third level is the level of meaning. If we talk about the calculative and instrumental side of people and the social and emotional side of people, there's also a moral and belief dimension, the need for meaning the need to know that what you do somehow connects with purpose in life, whatever that purpose may mean to you. The detaching side, I call mortification after that good old religious expression, even though many people, again, have backed off when I said that and said, gee, I wouldn't want to live in any place that made me go through that. But it is the experience of humbling oneself before the group in the community, of revealing oneself in some ways the human potential movement might talk about divesting oneself of ego. There are lots of terms and phrases for that. But again, what's, what you're detaching yourself from is your sense of self as a totally differentiated individual who has secrets, has terrible things, has wonderful things, but whatever it is, living in the shell, the boundary, the casing only of your own self. It's coming out from that is the meaning of mortification. And it's coming out as part of a humbling process. It's something the early communist leaders in China did before the villages, even when it was when they were the first to do it, was they stood up and confessed. You know, I did take an extra quilt for myself when I was delivering it to the community. It's something that people do in, in therapeutic groups and encounter groups in part to unburden themselves of the sense of, of such, a, such a burden of separateness, that I have all these terrible secrets. How will you feel about me if I, if I share them? It's a sign of trust, it's a sign of faith, it's a sign of coming out of only oneself to be part of a larger system of meaning. So actually, in fact, the encounter group was not invented in 1947 in Bethel, Maine by NTL or in 1960 by Esalen Institute, but it was invented a long time ago by religious movements as a way of providing people with that experience and coming out from themselves. Oneida used self and mutual criticism long before China heard of it, and it was a time for people in the community to say what they really said and felt. And it worked differently in different kinds of communities, but it provided a sense of commitment because what else is there left to preserve about myself? You know it all. I have nothing left more to hide, so 
so we really know each other well and can get on with it. And it was also part of the struggle for spiritual growth in, in such communities. The unsuccessful groups tended not to have that. In fact, the complaints often about the failure of alternatives are that people remain too selfish. They may remain too caught up only in their own purposes. But often what that means is that they haven't found that kind of meaning that comes from connection with the community and through that with connection with the transcendent level that I'll get to in, the, in a moment. Well, mortification, there were also a number of other more totalitarian ways that successful communities help people mortify. They tended to adopt uniform styles of dress, lots of things that de-differentiated individuals and instead gave them a group identity. It was the born-again phenomena. Many communities, many individuals and communities do this, by the way, themselves without a group saying, do it, take a new name. I now have a new self, a self that grew up here. At Synanon, people are zero years old when they join the community, and their birthdays are celebrated from their date of entry, and their age is their age in that community. These, again, are all ways that people are taking their meaning from their involvement and not from their, their own individual biography. Sometimes by the kinds of, I mean, the way monastic orders do it, the kinds of very austere lifestyles and living separately. Um, However, it doesn't automatically work, and this goes for communion too, that this sense is created from people together in one house and asking them to live together very closely and at the, at the same level of consumption and so forth. Many of those kinds of communes, in fact, didn't work. It's also striking to remember in all of this that the successful groups, at the same time that they asked people to, to put their self into the group also provided some physical space and distance for people to get, to get away, to have a rhythm of, in, of withdrawal as well as a rhythm of involvement. So it's important to remember that some of this was balanced by the ability to have space. The frenzy of the Shaker ritual, for example, that in, very intense encountering and expression of feelings was balanced by a very quiet contemplative workday in which people worked in silence often and often had time to be with themselves privately and alone. So there was balance here too, but there was that sense of being able to detach from your individuality, your total, your bounded individuality in order to attach to the community. And this leads to what may be, in fact, the most important of all of these mechanisms and, and processes through which Community is built, commitment is built, and that is the process of transcendence. The ways in which, by membership, by belonging, by being part of that, people get in touch with higher sources of meaning. Shared purpose is very important to begin with. Many alternatives, in some ways, don't build in a strong enough sense of shared purpose. For some members, it's a job. For other members, like of a city commune, it's a place to live. But having that common sense of Sharing of purpose and meaning, as well as sharing the more mundane, everyday things, was a very important part of successful communities. In order to do this, they often built on traditions that members brought with them that were part of their heritage. I find that unsuccessful alternatives of my acquaintance, those that, that fail and dissolve easily, early, are ones that, that, while turning their back on the outside world, decide they'll turn their back on all of the traditions that might infuse their current venture with meaning. They feel they have to invent it all by, from scratch, by themselves, their own cosmology, their own ideology, and will take nothing 
from the heritage that they bring in. But the sense of heritage and history and tradition is another way of being in touch with transcendent meaning because it's another way of drawing sources of wisdom. This is often done also through charismatic figures who themselves symbolize the kind of meaning that's carried by the community. This is sometimes read as, gee, those communities are totalitarian because they always have to have a central figure. Well, they're not necessarily because communion rituals involve a great deal of participation, shared decision-making, shared work systems, and so the central figure often is really is the one who speaks for, who says the will of the community as he or she understands it, but who also symbolizes what state of spiritual growth that community is, is striving to attain. And this is one reason why religious alternatives, religiously infused alternatives, often have more to build on than those that start from certain kinds of only political frameworks. But political frameworks, too, can be a source of transcendent meaning if they really imbue the community with shared purpose and shared meaning. And finally, as I indicated earlier, transcendence is built for any kind of group, any kind of relationship, when even the most mundane acts can be infused with meaning, when there is little separation between the supermental and the spiritual, when the spiritual is imminent in some ways in every act that people engage in in the community. Many of the people I know who start alternatives do so because, in fact, they're trying to get away from the separation in their lives between I'm spiritual over here and then I go off and do what I have to do to make a living. So that's some of, that's some of the energy that often infuses it. Yet sometimes people forget how to really translate that into a spiritual infusion of everyday life. So that even those alternatives that succeed for a while sometimes ultimately fail because they forget their spiritual purposes or their, their transcendent meaningful purposes, not only religious but political. And they get too caught up in running the bureaucracy and the printing press. And isn't it terrific that a lot of people are buying our books and let's do a little more marketing and maybe we need a marketing expert and forget that each of those things has to be imbued with meaning in some ways for that sense of tr transcendence and commitment to remain alive. That is why domestic chores especially, because are important for com those communities that share living space, that everybody does some cleaning, tends to be very, very important because that in some ways, it has a lot of interesting symbolic connotations, um, I think, which I better not go into now unless somebody's interested in Mary Douglas on clean and dirty. Because, and, and why that is a more important issue than just it's silly in utopia who takes out the garbage. It is because in those most mundane acts, we really do see what the translation of the meaning of, of the group. That's where, that, that's where a lot of the action is. Transcendence is tremendously important, and perhaps the most important, because in some ways it may be possible to work backwards from transcendence to all of the others, because if there is that sense of shared meaning and shared purpose, if there is a spiritual consciousness that all of our acts and lives together are invested with this purpose, then many of the other processes and institutional arrangements derive from that. Then sacrifice is no burden, then communion flows from the rituals, then renunciation flows from the sense of, of shared meaning as a group, and so forth. Let me leave you, unless somebody wants to come back to clean and dirty in a little while, but let me leave you with, with what I consider to be 
who basic laws of the universe about forming alternatives or in fact making any kind of change. And those are, it's never too late and it's never too soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.